All right. Next in our attempt to cover the kingdom of God in redemptive history, we move from Abraham to the Babylonian exile, which is approximately a thousand years. Now remember where we are and what we're doing. We're trying to see in the Old Testament scriptures that continuum, if I could use that word, that continuum, the consistency and continuity of the the scripture, the revelation, all of revelation is given to unfold the history of redemption. So we're moving through that Old Testament era to see, to see that, to see that continuum and that it is in fact a revelation of his progressive uh, unfolding of his kingdom. And today we are in that portion <coughs> between uh, from Abraham to the Babylonian exile, which, as I say, is approximately a thousand years. By way of inter an introduction, uh, uh, Goldsworthy on page 67 says, As Christians, we recognize that Israel's history is not haphazard, nor a series of random incidents but is but as in all history it is governed by the purpose of god the unique feature of israel's history however was that its purpose involved both revelation of salvation and the way of salvation since god is lord and since salvation has reference to the bringing of sinners, sinners into the kingdom of God, that same king will be reflected in the history, which is salvation history. And of course, he put that in quotation marks, meaning specifically referring to the history of Israel as being uh, that vessel by which we can follow the history of Israel. Now, what is the principal significance of this period, Abraham to the Babylonian captivity? What is the significant significance? I'm asking, what is the significance of this Abrahamic period? It is, of course, it is that period of what we have called the Abrahamic Covenant. It is the further unfolding of God's design in building his kingdom from the nations of men. And this Abrahamic Covenant is huge in that, in that revelation, in that unfolding. The Abrahamic Covenant is looms large for sure. In this covenant, we see those same three abiding elements that I have emphasized 
Goldsworthy has emphasized all the way through so far, he has emphasized that anywhere you see this covenant being further unfolded, you will find those same three abiding elements that we've seen to be the elements of the kingdom of God every time. Down there in the middle of that paragraph on page six, bottom six, page 68, he says, God, in fact, promises Abraham that his descendants would be, number one, God's people, number two, in God's place, and number three, under God's rule. There's your three elements that always come up, always visible when you're seeing the kingdom of God unfolded. These are the three elements that they will be his people, that they will be, they will have a place, a specific place in his purposes, and that they will be under his rule. And surely, surely, surely you agree with me that that is a, a, a very accurate description of the covenant with Abraham. Those elements are there. However, additionally, in this unfolding revelation, it's seen more clearly than heretofore, that is in this Abrahamic, that all the covenant promises must be embraced by faith. Genesis 15 and verse 6, and and he, speaking of Abram, verse 6, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness, which, of course, is mirrored in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So, salvation by faith in God's word alone is not a new doctrine in the New Testament. I was taught otherwise most of my life. <laughs> salvation, let me say it again, salvation by faith alone, in God's word alone, is not a New Testament novelty. It is God's method and the teaching all the way back to the very beginning. And of course, now it is more clearly and more fully disclosed when we come up to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's active faith is seen in so many places, so many ways. In Genesis 13, 8 through 11, it's seen when his nephew occupies the best land. Well, certainly that tested Abraham's faith because God had promised him the land. So it was a test of his faith. In Genesis 15, verse 1 through 5, this was a huge test of his faith, this matter of having a seed in his old age. Clearly, that was a test of faith. Abraham, we've already read, believed the Lord. I know that sounds 
almost trite in our day. The simplicity of it just is not very uh, alluring to this generation. But he just believed the Lord. He just believed the Lord. And you see that in his trial concerning him having a seed in his old age. Then you get down to Genesis 22, verse 1 through 7, and there's a huge trial of his face, faith when the Lord commands him to kill Isaac. Kill the seed. Huge test of his faith. I, I've never read that story or thought of it without just having to confess that I, I, I don't think I could have done it. I, I don't think I could have done it. I, I don't think I could have obeyed that. But Abraham believed the Lord. And so it was all of these things I'm, I'm showing to you. And then, of course, we know in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, he was seeking a city. This is surely a thing of faith. He was seeking a city. Seeking a city that was not of this world. All of these are evidence that this, this, this kingdom of God is not secured by armies or men or carnal things. This is a, this is a kingdom of faith. This is a kingdom of faith. Through all of these things that I just listed you, only God's promise sustained Abraham. Only God's promise. That's all he had. Top of page 70, Goldsworthy says, the rest of the patriarchal story takes us with Joseph and his brothers to Egypt, where the stage will be set for the next chapter in the history of redemption. The very fact that the descendants of Abraham are forced to go to Egypt for their welfare is also to be seen in the light of the covenant promises. This situation in the history of redemption where Joseph and his brothers go down to Egypt, that is not an interruption of the kingdom, not an interruption of the kingdom plan but it is a further development in the kingdom plans. And uh, this is, I, I was sharing with my wife yesterday, having a conversation with a lady that works, that I work with. And uh, we we're talking about different scripture texts and different doctrines. And I said to her, if, if there is any one thing one truth that I could get you to lay hold on and it would change your life more than everything, it would be this. For you to see the scriptures covenantally rather than dispensationally, that would change your thinking about everything. If you could just see that one thing. And that's what, when we come to Joseph and his brothers and the whole thing going down to Egypt, and all, that's not an interruption. <laughs> that's not a, a, a God is not going to have to 
to he fumbled the ball and he's going to have to recover it now. No, this is all part of the unfolding history of redemption and his covenant stands. It stands and it will not be found not standing. But moving on, at the bottom of page 70, I want to, I want to read this and I want you to follow it slowly. Exodus 1.8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Suddenly, says Goldsworthy, suddenly the once favored sons of Israel are no longer welcome guests in the fertile Nile Delta. Sojourn becomes captivity and privilege becomes enslavement. The covenant promises are moved one stage further for the people not only live away from the promised land, they are now prisoners to a cruel monarch. So you'd say, well, then they're no longer, they're no longer in their place and they're no longer under his rule. Again, the experience of the recipients of the promises seem to contradict the promises. Down at the bottom. At this stage, we can only observe that God must have a reason for creating this tension. To what purpose are the promises channeled through this extraordinary Egyptian experience? Well, the book of Exodus will show us the answer to that question. Bottom of page 71. So Israel is in bondage through no obvious fault of her own in Egypt, far from Canaan. Now God acts on the basis of the covenant to release the children of Jacob. But Pharaoh is a cruel tyrant and refuses to let the people go. God, through his servant Moses, works a series of signs and wonders to make Pharaoh release Israel. And what he's doing now is he's going on, he's moving right on along in the history and showing the answer to the question. Why did all this happen down here? This looks like an interruption to the plant. No, no, it's in the plant. Listen. Each plague inflicted as a demonstration of the superior might of Jehovah over Egypt and its gods. The final plague is associated with a redemptive picture that Israel was never to forget. So in this setting, here in this place, the Lord brings about this thing to set before Israel and to us to this day how many sermons, how many sermons have been preached from that, from that incident that night, the blood on the doorpost and the death angel. All of that is actually unfolding, unfolding God's purposes in his redemption. As God pronounces death upon all the firstborn in Egypt, a way of escape is provided for believing Israelites. The sacrifice of a lamb and the sprinkling of its blood on the doorpost would cause the angel of death to pass over each household that complied. The Passover redemption of the Israelite firstborn is coupled with the escape from Egypt so that the redemptive picture 
is extended to include all of Israel. The effect of this tenth plague on Pharaoh is to cause him finally to let the people go. Up to this point, his heart is hardened, and even now he has second thoughts and pursue the fugitives to the Red Sea. The way out of Egypt would naturally be by the well-trodden way from the delta through the coastal strip to Canaan. But God does not lead them that way. Exodus 13, 17. But through the wilderness to the shores of the sea. This is like running into a blind alley with walls on all sides. But God's purpose is still to be seen. He has already overcome the barrier of Pharaoh's hard heart. And now he will overcome the barrier of the sea. It will not be by following the easy trade route, but by the strong hand of God that Israel will come out of Egypt. Now here's the point. Redemption is a miracle that only God can perform. And here it is. This is what all this history is saying. This is what all this unfolding of the purposes of God is saying. Again, as you move through it, as you move through the history, you see how that the history is constantly opening up, opening up new vistas about this redemption, about this redemption. That's what we're trying to say in this whole lesson, this whole class. We're saying that we're trying to press the point that this whole Old Testament history is a history of his redemptive purposes so as to bring us to Christ. And then in Christ we will have the total fulfillment of all that his redemptive purposes. Redemption is a miracle that only God can perform, says Goldsworthy. Even the magicians of Egypt have recognized the finger of God at work. So we've moved then to this deliverance out of Egypt. And uh, the provision God made for them, which further revealed, uh, further revealed his redemption. That, of course, as I said, has been my primary purpose in this study, is to show the continuity of the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes in the history. Now we come to Sinai. To Sinai. The escaped Israelites came to Sinai where the next great aspect of Moses' ministry was to take place. The giving of the law. Now again, I said the Abrahamic covenant stands as a huge mile marker in this unfolding of God's redemption. Now we come to Moses and Sinai. Now the giving of the law. Now we have yet another huge marker in this, in this matter of God's 
revealing himself. Goldsworthy says so much confusion has arisen at this point that we must endeavor to understand clearly the purpose of the law. Part of this confusion occurs because of the misunderstanding of the attitude to the law in the New Testament. Paul says of Christians, you are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6, 14. And because he stresses that justification means a righteousness, which is in Romans 3, 21, apart from law, it is too easily assumed that the law is not only bypassed in the gospel, but even overthrown. And many of us have been in circles where that was taught. He says it is unfair, is not unfair, I think, to say that many Christians have an understanding something like this. God gave Israel the law at Sinai as a program of works whose goal is salvation. The history of Israel shows how complete was the inability of Israel to achieve that required standard. God, therefore, in a kind of desperation, scrapped plan A and instituted as an emergency plan B, which was the gospel. The Old Testament, the Old Testament, from that view, because of that view, thus becomes essentially the record of the failure of plan A (laughs) and its relationship to the New Testament is almost wholly negative. Now, I know for a fact that I was taught that and that that is held largely by professed Christians today. But you see, the reality is that the law was never given as a means to be achieved for salvation. Bottom page 74, he says, the only reasonable assessment of the Sinai law in this context is that it is part of the program of grace whereby God works to fulfill his promises to Abraham. There is no plan A to be jettisoned later on, but part of a single comprehensive plan God had from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning. This was not a plan. The law didn't represent a failed plan for salvation. (laughs) In fact, the law above all, of all the many things we can talk about that the law does, the principal thing that it does is it reveals the character of God. It, it, it helps us understand who he is, what his character is. He says on 75, the heart of the law is the Ten Commandments, which are prefaced by the single significant phrase, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Those are the words that preface the law. <laughs> I am the Lord your God. These words should govern our understanding 
of the Sinai law. Here we see that God declares that he is the God of his people, that he has already saved them. What follows then cannot be a program aimed to achieve salvation by works since they have already received it by grace. The law is given to the people of God after they become the people of God by God's grace. <laughs> now, I thought this was uh, an interesting and worthy footnote. Goldsworthy's purpose in this footnote is to show that the giving of the law was never intended to be a means of salvation. Bottom of page 75, there's that footnote. This interpretation is supported by recent studies into treaty formulations. Now, this is interesting. I, I've never understood this quite like this. This interpretation, that is his interpretation of what the law was meant to do, is supported by recent studies into treaty formulations in the ancient Near East. It has been demonstrated with a fair degree of certainty that the form of the Decalogue, the form of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and possibly even the whole book of Deuteronomy is the same as the conventional form of treaty covenants imposed by conquering kings on the conquered. These treaties set out the stipulations which governed the lives of the vassal people as members of the great kingdom. If the analogy of form holds, the use of this form for the Decalogue would be appropriate only if the law of Sinai was intended to be a covenant which stipulated the conditions imposed on the people that were made subject to the covenant of God. That's interesting. That's an interesting thought and consideration. But as I said, Goldsworthy's whole purpose is to show that the law was never intended as a means to salvation. If anything, he's saying that possibly because of its form, and because that form is the same form that was used in ancient Near East for uh, treaty formulations, it could be seen to be the stipulations imposed on his covenant people. Certainly, it was not meant to be a means to salvation. The question whether man would ever be saved, that is, have a living relationship with God by his own obedience, had already been settled. You say that clearly, and we'll leave it there today. Let me say that again to you clearly. The question whether man would ever be saved, that is, have a living relationship, by his own obedience, had already been settled long ago in the Garden of Eden. So the law could not have been 
a means of salvation for those who could achieve it. Never was that intended. Never was that designed. Never was that its point. The question of whether or not man would ever be saved by his obedience has already been settled in the Garden of Eden long ago. Settled. So, whatever it is, and I've listed some of the things, I've said that it, it, has, it is the means of revealing the character of God himself. If you want to say also that it is the stipulations of his terms of his covenant with his people, all those things and many more, many more. Whatever all you can say of the law and its being, of course, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that's very clear in the New Testament. Whatever about all that, it is not, was not, and never was meant to be a means of salvation. So those who teach that are completely off the mark. They are not following the biblical understanding, biblical theology, the understanding of the continuity of the revelation of salvation in Christ. As I say, when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, then all this is done. All the revelation is fulfilled. In Christ is everything, everything that he has been trying, he has been unfolding along the way through the Old Testament. Very critical that you understand the Old Testament this way, or you'll be off the mark to understand its purposes. We'll pick back up next week, moving through this period of uh, of redemptive history. Do you have any questions, comments, or any other things you'd like to add to these these specific thoughts?